0: Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast, the uncensored podcast where we discuss issues and stories highlighted on the Kennedy Beacon Substack and track some of the rumblings and goings on around Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign. Hi, everyone. I'm Francis Scott, and I'm here with my co hosts, Nico House and Aaron Good. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up? Glad to be back. Hi, Francis. Good to see you guys. Of course, the title of today's show is actually a question. Why Kennedy? But I'd like to add to that, why Kennedy? Why now in particular? What is it about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that makes him the right person for the job of President of the United States in these particular Difficult, stressful times. But before we get into it, let's listen to an audio clip from something the Kennedy Coalition shared on X, formerly Twitter. It's the voice of slam poet, artist and activist Theo Wilson, who's also one of Kennedy's campaign advisors.
1: In the 90s, the Democratic Party shifted right. The entire working class, red states and blue states, have been left behind structurally. Are suffering right and so republicans make promises to the working class and democrats make promises to the working class and neither of them get their needs met because both parties have abandoned the working class including now the working poor see a lot of people think they're working class they're not working class like if you actually look at what they have in their savings compared to what the average person had spending wise in their savings in like the 70s 1960s 50s right we're actually the working poor most of us think that we're working class are actually 600 to a thousand dollars away from an unrecoverable emergency that's not the working man's fault the working man didn't do that because of technology we're actually four times as productive as we used to be but because nobody's looking out for the working class they have literally shrunken in terms of their wealth into the working poor the meritocracy has failed because wages have not kept up with expenses and that has a lot to do with the destruction of the countervailing powers to crony capitalists. See, crony capitalists have always been there. But what we had was a strong working class labor union sector whereby people could collectively bargain to the point where wages kept track with expenses. That was destroyed in this country. And it's no coincidence that our wages have stagnated since the 80s because that's when this separation began. We're going to make sure that we remedy that.
0: And I, for one, really appreciate everything Theo Wilson's saying, because it's true. We've had 40 years of big money for a handful of millionaires and billionaires and not nearly enough money for the rest of the people. Nico?
2: Yeah, and Theo is 100% right. With that Democratic Leadership Council creation that happened in the 90s, we started to see them facilitate this shift that has led to $3 of the wealthiest people in the USA today having a combined economic power that basically equals more than the 290 million of us who make up the bottom 90% of the population in this country. Uh, That's insane, honestly, when you think about it. Uh, What's that saying that always circulates during presidential elections? It's the economy, stupid. Uh, And that's true, right? That is true to a large extent, but I think in these times that we're living in right now, It's not that singular. We might want it to be, but the reality is we are teetering on the brink of World War III, so the economy isn't the only thing on people's minds. And yes, we do need to be uplifting the working and middle class, which we know Kennedy is absolutely right on about. He gets it and he understands the crazy power of the elite class and has spoken often about how COVID lockdowns led to the transfer of trillions of dollars in wealth from that 90% to the 1%. In fact, it was the largest wealth transfer that we have ever seen. But we also need a le- leader who gets it about the international crises that we're facing. Uh, not just Americans, but uh, the crises that people are facing all across the planet. Which of course leads us to our special guest today, who knows RFK as well as anyone who isn't in his family. Uh, And even probably better than some of those, given all the backlash we've seen from them. So, (laughs) Eric, could you do the honors for us to introduce him for all of us?
3: Thanks, Nico. Yes, yes, it is my honor to welcome to the show Dick Russell, the legendary author of 15 books, including five co-authored with former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, three of which became New York Times bestsellers. Dick also wrote two groundbreaking books on the JFK assassination, The Man Who Knew Too Much and On the Trail of the JFK Assassins, which is now being updated with a new edition set to be released next month. Dick is also a lead researcher and commentator for the 10-part Rob Reiner, Soledad O'Brien podcast series about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy as we near the 60th anniversary of that terrible event. Today, Dick is here to discuss his latest book, an intimate biography of his longtime friend and collaborator, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The book is called The Real RFK Jr. Trials of a Truth Warrior, Dick, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Aaron, thanks so much for having me today. And hello to Nico. So thanks, I, would, I think it
3: would be great to start this off with you telling us about how you came to know and collaborate with, with Bobby Kennedy, because I, I find your friendship and David Talbot's friendship with him over the years to be very encouraging, because I'm really, really familiar with the work that you all have done. And to me, it's fascinating that he would work with people like you and befriend people like you. So could you tell us about uh, your own personal involvement with with Robert Kennedy Jr.?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I've known him for more than 20 years. And it started out as, a, as a, I was interviewing him for a, a book I was doing about the California gray whales and this threat to their habitat in Mexico from Mitsubishi and the Mexican government. And uh, Bobby had been going down there as a a lawyer, staff lawyer for the Natural Resources Defense Council and uh, fighting to stop this development and and, uh, playing with these friendly whales. They're amazing animals that would come up to you in small boats in that lagoon. Incredible experience still going on today if people want to go down there and and experience it. But so anyway, I interviewed him about that in 1998. And we also turned out to be, uh, both of us recreational fishermen that that enjoyed... Kept catching striped bass, and I'd been very involved in a campaign to save that fish, and and he had two on the Hudson River. So it was kind of a natural, you know, connection that way. Um, I never spoke to him in those years about uh, the books I'd written on the assassination of his uncle. I knew quite a bit about his father's assassination too, but I didn't know how he felt about it, and I really didn't want to broach that subject because the environment was really what we were all about together. So that that's how it began, and. Uh, we worked on different projects through the years together, off and on. He wrote the introductions to a book I did on climate change, uh, two editions of that, a hardcover and then a paperback, a new introduction in recent years. And um, and then along came uh, 2020. Uh, and actually last summer, the summer of 2022, uh, was when I decided that there really needed to be a biography about him. And I can tell you why I came to that decision so in a minute.
2: question, Bobby is obviously confronting a wide spectrum of powerful corporate actors and judging from your experiences together, he's had a lot of legal battles um, with corporate actors, you know, in your case, mostly dealing with the environment. How do you feel like his legal battles then prepare him for what he's about to go up against?
4: Well, you know, I think I think they prepare him incredibly because, He's been up against companies like ExxonMobil and the Hudson River and, and later Monsanto Chemical. He took them on with a team of lawyers and won a huge settlement for uh, uh, people who'd been poisoned by their, uh, their chemicals that they were, they were releasing uh, in, in, uh, on, from people who are spraying on lawns all over the country. So, you know, he's fought these guys for a long time and he's become aware of what's called agency capture. I mean, the fact that the EPA the FDA, the CDC, the NIH have all been captured by the very industries that they're supposed to be regulating and, and protecting our, our public health. And uh, I don't think anybody knows that as well as he does. And, and therefore, he's really prepared to to change things once he could he gets in there if he can.
0: You know that's how i learned about him Uh, investigating my own medical mystery and discovering that the majority of the money used at the fda came from industry blew my mind and that's that's how i ended up following and finding uh, robert f kennedy jr and all of his work i think a lot of people don't realize oh wait he's he had something to do with the whole monsanto thing like people just don't understand he's been behind so many of these victories in the past legal victories but I want to I mention you've also written a lot about President John F. Kennedy. Of course, he gave his peace speech in 1963, months before he died. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is making a, a peace theme, a central theme of his candidacy and his campaign. Sixty years after JFK, why is it, Dick, that you think the U.S. needs a new Kennedy and his thoughts on foreign policy?
4: Well, you, you know, he was a kid uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when basically his father and his uncle saved the world from nuclear Armageddon, and uh, we we wouldn't be sitting here talking today if that hadn't happened. So he experienced this firsthand, and uh, then later, you know, he watched as as his father. Um, Came out against the Vietnam War in 1968 and joined the presidential race a few months before he was killed. Probably would have gone, gone on to become president of the United States. So, you know, he, he, he experienced all this as a young man. And, and so he's, you know, he's seeking to return our politics to where they were when his father and his uncle, you know, were in power. And and he's come out very strongly to say we we need peace in the Ukraine. We can't continue to just fund that war uh, to the extent that we have. We've got to send to be able to talk to people. We got to be able to sit down and talk to Vladimir Putin and and uh, whoever is is uh, it, that we need to, to to to
2: change to get this yeah. in, in the right direction. It's very interesting that you bring that up, Dick. Because what a lot of people don't know is that um, JFK was willing to talk to Russia. I'm um, willing to talk to Cuba and Fidel Castro. And right now we see a culture that has been established in politics, American politics anyway, where they basically shame you. for trying to make peace with other powerful nations, especially superpowers. Do you see a lot of parallels uh, in, in what, I, I guess in what RFK could do uh, similar to, to his uncle JFK in, in today's world? Because like you said, basically JFK help to avoid a nuclear armageddon and unfortunately it seems like right now history is repeating itself and RFK has a unique ability to influence that.
4: Yeah, I really think he does. You know, he's because in his environmental fights too, what I write about quite a bit in the real RFK Jr is that he was willing to to reach out, you know, across the aisle, right? I mean, he worked a lot with with commercial fishermen, with farmers, with Republican businessmen, you know, to get things done. I mean, he, he never had a problem with that. He wasn't, you know, wedded to a particular party ideology. Uh, he was wedded to, you know, trying to, to protect the people from problems, the, the, getting poisoned, basically, in a lot of cases. And, and uh, so I think, you know, just as his as JFK reached out to Khrushchev in a secret exchange, by the way, of, of they had letters going mm-hmm. back and forth between them back in the early 60s, you know, that they weren't telling the Joint Chiefs of Staff about because they knew that uh, they were opposed. They they, they were just ready to, to bomb Cuba and, you know, bomb mm-hmm. us all back to the Stone Age. So, you know, he, Bobby grew up with this. As, as a as a really driving force in his life, just as as his father turned him on to uh, the plight of, you know, the poor people in Mississippi and and these dinner table conversations that they would have where the kids would take different sides of an issue and and learn about it that way. So that's never left mm-hmm. him, you know, and and he's studied. The thing about him I, I so admire is that uh, he doesn't just talk off the cuff. You know, he loves science. He studied science. He he got into uh, fighting for public health when you know most everybody, including the big media, uh, you know, thought he was crazy or you know he's just way out there on a limb. And and he's the uh, thing about. I think a lot of people have come to realize about him is that he's he's an honest guy. You know, he may not always be right. He's willing to change his mind on things if uh, if he, he's shown that he's he's mistaken. But you know, he's he's going to say. He's going to shoot, shoot from, not just from the hip, but I mean, from educated, uh, uh, from edu- his education that he's, he's trained himself to do um, with these issues.
2: I think Aaron has a question for you, then I have one more for you.
4: I guess this could be more of a
3: question about how democracy might inform foreign policy and how it can be kept from informing foreign policy. And uh, that's his uh, commitment to censorship and, uh, well, commitment to opposing censorship. So I would be his commitment to free speech. How do you see that as being sort of fundamental to John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy Jr.'s own ideas about how democracy ought to to function?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think he's very concerned that our democracy is not going to function very well any longer if censorship, like he's faced, uh, continues. And that's really the reason that I wrote the book was because, you know, I, I looked around at what the New York Times and the, you know, the TV networks, I mean, they were blackballing him completely. Once he got into the whole public health arena, I mean, he he couldn't even write a an op-ed anymore, you know, or, or a letter to the editor. They wouldn't allow him to do any of these things. He was he was censored then eventually by, you know, Instagram. They threw him off Instagram during the COVID crisis. And so, yeah, he has spoken out against this and very strongly. And, and, uh, it's not, it's not just for himself. I mean, he's, he's talking about this is a real danger uh, to democracy. If we can't express different opinions from each other and then have a dialogue about them, then we're, we're really screwed. And, uh, yeah. you know.
2: A lot of people seem to forget that um, candidates are human. And so given how close you've been with him in the past, I would, I would like for you to inform our audience of a time perhaps where, one, you've seen a more vulnerable side, an instance where you've seen a vulnerable side of RFK that kind of made you like, wow, this guy really, really cares about this stuff more than what people may think. And then also another time where you kind of were in awe of the strength that he displayed uh, from like a human perspective.
4: Yeah, well, I was able to spend a lot of time with him in the course of writing the biography. Um, we would sit down every you know, week or two and, and talk about things and I think one of the, I I was really quite amazed one day and impressed that he, he called me back into the room and sat me down and he said, uh, you know, I really, there's something I really, I got to talk about. And that's, that's how he overcame uh, what he went through after his father's death. He was like 14 years old, 15 years old. I mean, he was a, he was a, you can imagine what that would have been like. And he he took off for a while. I mean, one summer, and I write about this in the book, he, w- he went out to the West Coast and rode freight trains and lived with hobos, you know, and, wow. and he went to Latin America and he lived with the most impoverished people there. And this is, these were ch- choices that he made that were actually the making of him in a lot of ways. At the same time, he was a very troubled guy and, uh, he was, uh, someone who was a heroin addict for 14 years until he almost, uh, didn't make it on an airplane uh one day and and had to go into rehab and uh and then AA and he came out of that um much stronger person a more spiritual person someone who had studied psychology and I think uniquely qualifies him to help uh families in this country that have been you know seen their kids in terrible situations with fentanyl and other, other uh, drugs. And, and he's somebody who's been there. He's been to the bottom and uh, he's able to uh, rise up from that and helped. He's already helped thousands of people. I went to an AA meeting and watched him there, watched him talk to all of these folks, you know, it was a packed house and, and just speak from the heart. And not because he was Bobby Kennedy, but because he was one of them.
0: And he'd Mm. been there
4: and he was going to do what he could to help.
0: I think that's what we all love about him when he gets really candid and really frank and really vulnerable and authentic. And you know, you can't script those sort of things if sorts of things, if you haven't lived through them, it's beautiful to see him do that. And that's what I think is so neat, Dick about your book. And, Um, especially when I'm reading what you've written about the early years of his life in Latin America, suddenly it makes so much sense why he is the way he is. And that's one thing that you definitely understand. And when people read your book, they will see it, too. This is not a put-on persona. This is who he really is. And I think it's beautiful and, and so telling that he said, hey, I'm going to be the first politician who's honest with the American people. Um, I'm sure that's one of the many reasons. And you can tell us more if you haven't already you know, touched on many of them, why you think he needs to be our president right now.
4: I, I think he is really the only politician who can bring people together. I mean, bring people who don't talk to each other anymore. And the country is so divided. This is what he talked to me about a couple of months before he made the decision to run. He said, we've never been this polarized. Uh, Nobody can talk to each other and have a civil conversation anymore if you're on the right or the left. And he said, and I feel, I really feel like I, I can be the one candidate who could bring people together because I've worked with all kinds of people. And because, you know, frankly, he really cares about people. I mean, you know, he's, he's, and he's all kinds of folks that he's worked with through the years. I mean, Waterkeeper Alliance, which he started now is, you know, uh, 300 chapters all over the world. It's protecting waterways. And and uh, all these things that, that he started are still going. Um, Children's Health Defense, finally, he, he got that going a few years back. And, and uh, they're still out there speaking out for, not for to end all of vaccines forever, but to have safe vaccines. That's all he saw ever said. And yet he's been you know, safe vaccines that are tested against a placebo in clinical trials,
0: and a placebo that's actually saline and not just another, another product.
4: Exactly. Yes, and and so he's you know every headline you see in the in the big media is he's anti-vaxxer, he's a conspiracy theorist, he's he's out there, he's crazy, he's inventing all these things. Well, hey, you know there are conspiracies that exist in this country, and uh, we've we've witnessed that in recent years a conspiracy to keep it quiet, the fact that uh, the virus actually came out of a lab in Wuhan, China that was funded by mm-hmm. the NIH. And now that's become pretty obvious that it, there was a cover-up uh, by Dr. Fauci and others uh, that this had occurred. I'm not saying they intentionally released it themselves, but you know, something was wrong. And, it's, and something was wrong in terms of what happened to his father and his uncle years ago. Uh, and, and there are real conspiracies and they do exist. And uh, we got to face those kind of things as a country. And I think uh, not just for the sake of his own family, uh, which, by the way, has opposed him in terms of uh, his call and one of his brother's calls for Sirhan to uh, be released from prison, uh, which the parole board in California agreed to. And then uh, finally, the the California governor, Newsom, decided not to do it after a number of Bobby's siblings went up against him on this, as they have on his running. And he says, "Okay, well, you know, he's going to still tell the truth. He's still going to do what he feels he's got to do. And if he's uh, opposed by his family members and others, that's just the way the chips fall." Yeah, Dick, uh, I really enjoyed.
3: <clears throat> I really enjoyed the whole book on RFK Jr. I interviewed you for my own podcast a while back, so I'd read it uh, a, a good while ago. But I, it, it stuck with me. You do a great job laying out his biography. And uh, the sort of personal details that make you respect the guy and admire what he's been able to overcome, given his, uh, the, the difficult uh, things he had to overcome, the death of his father at a very young age, and uh, the way that he had to somehow put the pieces back together after that. It's really an inspiring uh, and illuminating book. I recommend that everybody read it. It's been a real pleasure for all of us to have you as our guest this week. I'm Aaron Good, and on behalf of myself and my colleagues, Nico House and Francis Scott, I want to thank Dick Russell for his time today and for doing so much of the heavy lifting for those of us who follow in his giant footsteps. And I thank you, the audience, for joining us. We invite everyone to visit and subscribe to, for free, the Kennedy Beacon Substack. Please tune in again next week for another episode of the Kennedy Beacon Podcast.